Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, another day that you have set aside for us to be gathered together by you and fed and nourished by you through word and through your spirit and through your sacrament. We pray that we'd be refreshed. We pray that we would be renewed. We pray that your word would accomplish everything that you've set out for it to accomplish in our lives. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your bidding as you conform us more and more to our Savior Jesus Christ. It is in his name and through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. I had started a series on Jonah and then got sick and then... Our pastor came back, and I'm going to try to finish Jonah. So I'd like to read chapters 3 and 4 today. We'll mostly be focusing on chapter 4, but I don't want to just yada yada over chapter 3, because there's a lot that happens there, which is the culmination, uh, really, of the story. It all fits together very nicely. And if you remember, in chapter 1, a call had come to Jonah to go and to preach to Nineveh and to uh, tell them. Uh, that God was displeased with their evil and to announce to them a message of salvation by believing and trusting in his promises. And Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, went the exact opposite way. (laughs) And then the Lord went and rescued Jonah through all kinds of events that we looked at in chapter 2. And then now the call comes again and tells him, go to Nineveh, where I told you to go in the first place. And this time he goes, and there's a massive revival. 120,000 people come to know the Lord. And then we'll note uh, how the prophet of the Lord uh, responds to this. But I submitted to you that at the very beginning of our study, that one of the themes of the book of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And actually from the belly of the fish, that's where uh, uh, Jonah had prayed that. And it's actually the theme of scripture. From beginning to end, from A to Z, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I'd like to start there in chapter 2, verse 9, and then continue to read the rest of the book. Or actually, 2.9b, just that last phrase. Jonah says, from the belly of the fish, when the Lord rescues him, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, that was published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them come out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should till he should see what would become of the city now the lord god appointed a plant and made it come up over jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort so jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant but when dawn came up the next day god appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So far, the reading of God's holy word. This is really a great story and really a great text. It's interesting in this text, uh, it starts off by saying that he, he called to Jonah a second time. That is actually underscoring God's determination to get his message to the Ninevites to save the people that he had from eternity said he's going to save. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan to save his people. Sinclair Ferguson said the salvation of one Hebrew sinner is used for the purpose to bring a whole nation of Gentiles to the Lord. Isn't that amazing to think about in God's mercy and God's grace? And this is also the second time that pagans called upon the name of the Lord. If you remember in the first chapter, the pagan sailors called out on the name of the Lord as well. This is highlighting God's mercy to all the nations, which was a promise that he had made to Abraham and that we're going to see more fully in Scripture as it goes on. It's a preview of what's to come in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the church. But here we see that God's goodness wasn't just for the nation of Israel, but through Israel, all the nations shall be blessed, and we see that here. And we see the king, a pagan king of Nineveh, prays a prayer similar to what the sailors had prayed. In Jonah 3.9, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This was not necessarily a mature faith or a strong faith or a fully assured faith, but it was indeed faith. It was indeed looking to God. It was indeed trusting in his mercy, hoping in his mercy, and banking on his promises. And beloved, that's good for us to remember that weak faith, struggling faith, and strong faith all have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. No faith has no faith, no Savior, 
But weak faith, struggling faith, doubting faith, strong faith all have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we will see what this pagan king says here, what the pagan prays in hope, Jonah actually knows to be true. Jonah knows the Lord is merciful. Jonah knows that God is going to show him mercy. The king is just hoping that. Who knows? He says, maybe God will do this. And we know Jonah knows he is going to do it, and Jonah actually resents it. One of the things that's fascinating about the book of Jonah is it's one of only two books in the Bible that ends in a question. The last verse says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The reason why it ends in a question is because it's inviting us in. It wants us to interact and just think about it. It's not just tying everything up in a neat bow and so we can check off, hey, read it, got it. <laughs> we are to interact with it and to think about it. There is an art and a beauty and a helpfulness to a well-asked question, a well-worded or a well-timed question. Sometimes a good question is even better than a good answer. It makes us think. It invites us into the story. It calls for reflection. It calls for consideration. And why does God ask questions? It's not because he's deficient in knowledge or he doesn't know the answer. He asks, of course, for our sake. He asks for humanity's sake. Remember when Adam had sinned, the Lord came to him and said, Adam, where are you? That wasn't because the Lord didn't know. It was because it was an opportunity for Adam to turn from his sin to his merciful Lord, from his sin to find salvation in the Lord. Remember, after Cain's sin, the Lord came to him and said, where is your brother? Again, it's not because the Lord didn't know, but there's an opportunity right there to be confronted with your sin and to turn to the Lord in repentance and for salvation. Good questions teach us something. They expose something. Think of all the great questions that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? What did you come out in the wilderness to see? He asked a woman, where is your husband? Again, not because he didn't know where her husband was, but it was an opportunity for her to recognize her sin as she's standing there looking in the face of a merciful Savior. Jesus asked many questions throughout scriptures. And so today I'd like to look at the three questions that the Lord asks. And the three points pretty brilliant question one question two and question three so we're just going to follow the questions uh, as they go through the Lord asks questions in the text which are for Jonah but also by extension for us and all who hear the word preached the first question really comes in the context of what might you expect Jonah to be relieved and elated right That he goes and he preaches and then 120,000 people repent. He's a prophet of the Lord. He was called to preach. He had run the other way. He had ended up being thrown overboard. He had cried out to the Lord to save him from the water. He got swallowed up by a great sea creature. He prayed and the Lord rescued him. And then he was sent to the city that Lord had told him to go. And the whole city repents and is saved. God showered down his mercy upon them. It was grace from the Lord. But he's not happy. He's angry. He's brooding. He's actually quasi-suicidal. Multiple times he's wanting to die. This isn't a Disney storyline ending. (laughs) 
It says in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If Jonah were going to write the catechism, it would be guilt, grace, and ingratitude, right? He's not thankful. When it says, but it displeased Jonah greatly, what does the it refer to? The Ninevites repenting from their violent and wicked ways and God relenting. He's mad that the Ninevites repented and he's mad that God relented from doing evil to them. One theologian said, the pagans are in harmony with God, but Jonah is not. He alone is the only one who's displeased in this whole story. And this is coincidentally only the second time that Jonah prays. Here's a prophet of the Lord going to do the work of the Lord. And the only first time he prayed was for his own salvation. And the second time here is really to die. He just prayed for his salvation. Think about that. He just prayed for his salvation and a rescue from the sea and from the belly of a fish. And then he gets rescued from that, vomited out, goes and preaches a sermon. The whole city repents. And now, oh, I wish I could die. Oh, the humanity. How horrible. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? In verse 2. This is the reason I actually ran away. Because I knew you would do this. I knew you were going to be merciful. I knew you were going to be gracious. I knew you were going to shower down mercy upon them. You're so predictable. He's mad at God for being God. He's mad at God for being merciful. Jonah justifies his prior conduct on the basis of God's unreasonable grace. I ran away because I knew you were going to be like this. It's the same thing Adam did, right? It's really your fault. What did Jonah know about the Lord? Look in verse 2. It says, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so he says in verse 3, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's interesting in how well the story is told that the words and how they're structured there for life and live are the same words and the same structure that he used from the belly of the fish when he was pleading for his own life. And now he's saying, take these away from me. It's ironically sad. This is arguably one of the worst prayers in Scripture, isn't it? The other one was one of the best. This is one of the worst. The divine attributes that Jonah cites are from a well-known list and a well-known liturgy that he would have known growing up as a Jewish boy. In Exodus 34, when the Lord uh, reveals himself even more clearly to Moses, Moses is asked to see uh, his glory, and the Lord said, you can't see my glory, but the Lord hit him in the cleft of a rock, and he said, The Lord passed before me and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the the children and the children's children to the third and fourth, fourth generations. Ironically, this standard confession of compassion and character is the root of Jonah's anger. Jonah does not wish God to be true to himself, one theologian said. Jonah was not sinning out of ignorance or 
or what God was really like, but Jonah's heart rebels precisely because he knows the truth about God. He wasn't confused about who God was. He's rebelling and he's angry because he knows that God is like this. He knows that God is merciful to sinners. He knows that God is gracious. He knows that God is steadfast in his love. Jonah's cry is one who has seen the exact opposite of what he wanted come to fruition. Beloved, how many times do we do that too? How many times do we want to tell God how things ought to be? I have one friend who would like nothing better than to be on God's board. And he wants to be a voting member (laughs) of God's board and tell God what to do. How many times do we have that idea in our head as well? Jonah resents God's mercy for sinners, some sinners. He was fine with God's mercy towards him, but towards the Ninevites? Their sworn enemies, the one who hates them, the one who God had prophesied is going to come and destroy them? We sometimes think that there are sinners, small s, and then there are sinners, those ones. He's going to be merciful to them? We want mercy for us, but for them? Don't you know what they do? Don't you know what they're like? Don't you know what they practice? Don't you know what they believe? Of course he knows. And we're more like them, whatever they are, than we are like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And yet we still kind of think towards them? You're going to be merciful, whoever the them is? It reminds us of the parable of the prodigal son where the Ninevites are really like the wanton, reckless younger brother. And Jonah is like the older, self-righteous brother. And the father asks him, are you going to come and join the feast? When the father goes and shows mercy to the, that sinner, that awful sinner, the son, and he shows mercy upon him and kills the fatted calf and says, rejoice with me. And the older brother's standing outside. And it leaves us there. He leaves the brother outside in the parable too, wondering, wanting to invite you in. Is he going to go in and enjoy the feast that mercy is not only available for him, but mercy was given to his younger brother? Or is he going to stand outside and resent the father and resent his grace and resent his mercy and resent his brother and resent his goodness? What is he going to do? And the question comes to us. One theologian said, God can judge others without our help. (laughs) He doesn't need us to say, go get them. Jesus, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And mercy by its very nature is unmerited and it's demerited. By definition, nobody deserves mercy. And so all of us who have received it, What would you do but say thank you? What would you do but live a life of gratitude and praise to the Lord? Steadfast love extends to Jonah. The steadfast love that was extended to Jonah was met with praise. The steadfast love extended to those sinners out there was met with anger and contempt. And so the Lord asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? It's meant to Hit a pause button for Jonah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Think about what you're saying. Think about what you're saying about yourself. Think about what you're saying about me. Think about what you're saying about your neighbors. Think about what you're saying about your enemies. Just stop for a minute. Do you do well to be angry? Think about it. To draw Jonah in, to 
consider. Do we do well to resent God's compassion on anyone? On our enemies. It invites us in as well. We, beloved, who have been touched by the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God, can we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and please have mercy on them. Please teach us to show mercy. How can we, who have been the recipients of such grace, not shower that grace and mercy down upon others? The second question says Jonah goes out of the city and he sits down and makes a booth for himself. Jonah may still hope that God will not show compassion. It's it's kind of the picture of him sitting on a hill overlooking the city saying, how's this all going to turn out? Jonah is hot. He's angry, both physically and spiritually. He's hot physically because of the scorching sun. He's hot spiritually because the Lord isn't doing what he wants him to do. And it says, The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. What a lovely phrase. A rebellious child, one theologian said, is being provided another moment of respite and another opportunity to bask in the goodness of God. Literally, it says to deliver him from the evil. Deliver him from the scorching sun. It says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Finally, Jonah's glad about something, right? He's glad about the plant. It's contrasting the displeasure in the salvation of the Ninevites and the displeasure... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped... Literally, I lost my place. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And this is like the first time that we notice that Jonah's glad about anything. But it has to do with his own comfort being relieved from a temporary problem of it being too hot. Rather than rejoicing that 120,000 people are now calling on the name of the Lord. Amid all the complaints from Jonah that fill the book, there is only one moment where he is glad and it is here. Can you imagine? I can tell you as a preacher of the gospel, I can't even imagine being able to go and preach somewhere where there are 120,000 people that come to know the Lord right then. I hope that I would just be undone with joy and marvel and mercy at what the Lord had done. This is like a preacher's dream. (laughs) And it's saying that he's angry, except he's glad about this plant. It says, but when dawn come, God appointed a worm. <laughs> and the worm attacked the plant so that it withered. And then it says, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The book of Jonah is really highlighting the sovereignty of God for us over and over. He's the main actor in the story. Not Jonah, not the fish, not the Ninevites, the Lord. He appointed a wind. He appointed a storm. He appointed the fish. He appointed a prophet. He appointed the message. He appointed the plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed a scorching east wind. And he appoints a savior for us. And he appoints us for salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the point of Jonah. This is the point of scripture. He's got this. It looks like the Ninevites might be a problem. It looks like the storm might be a problem. It looks like... The wind might be a problem. It looks like the sea might be a problem. You know what? The Lord's got it all. The Lord's behind it all. He appointed all of that. 
He appoints both the means and the ends of salvation. Salvation belongs to him. It's meant to give us great confidence and great hope uh, in our life (laughs) that we belong to him and that he's got this. We are secure. It is him. It is this God that we worship. It is this God that we serve. It is this God that we love. It is his mission of mercy that we proclaim. It is in his name that we have been baptized. It is in him that we live and that we hope and we have peace and we have salvation. He's the main actor of the story. He's the one who brought all of this to fruition. And Jonah asks again to die. In verse 8, he said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God asks him his second question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Right, the one thing that he's glad about. Right, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah doubles down. He said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Finally, Jonah expresses concern about something perishing. The plant. God had questioned the justice of Jonah regarding his anger over salvation of the Ninevites. And now he's questioning him about this plant. Here was another opportunity for Jonah to turn to the Lord. No, I don't do well to be angry. I don't do well to be angry. It's a sinful inclination of my heart. I'm hating my neighbors. Would you please forgive me? I know that you are merciful. I know that you are compassionate. Would you please take pity on me again? There's a warning here for us to consider, isn't there? Are we shaking our fist at the Lord, angry at him? Are we like the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, we will not have this man rule over us? Are we resenting God's mercy, God's grace, how he rules the universe, how he brings about salvation, those whom he chooses to save? Or are we looking to him? And gratitude and thanks for the mercy that he showered down upon us. Beloved, what makes you glad? What makes you glad about what the Lord does? We turn to the third question. In verse 10 and 11, and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Dr. Estelle in his commentary says, in these closing climactic verses, God uses a kind of argument known as from the lesser to the greater to set up a contrast between two things. Like in Matthew, when Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In other words, like even unregenerate fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more, your heavenly Father who is perfect and who loves you, does he not know? And so the point, Estelle says, is that God has mercy on sinful mankind trapped in ignorance and corruption. Man's sinful bondage is man's own fault, but God still has compassion on sinners. Is it not glorious that he does? Do we not see the glory in the words of Jesus Christ suffering at the hands of cruel men? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Nineveh has many people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyles and do not know how to get out, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, it says. And Jonah has cared about a plant. Shouldn't God care about the Ninevites? If Jonah's caring about this plant, how much more should the God who created Jonah, created the plant, created the Ninevites, not care about the Ninevites? It's a much bigger issue what happens to the Ninevites than what happens to this plant. And surely they're not morally innocent. At no place in this story does it say that the Ninevites were not guilty. The Ninevites don't claim their innocence. Jonah doesn't claim their innocence. And God doesn't claim their innocence. The reason why they need his mercy is because they're guilty. Because they're sinners. They recognize that they repent. They confess. They turn to the Lord. It's sinners who need a savior, and they are sinners. And our sin is our own fault. We're guilty. We've run our own way. We've fled. But the Lord is compassionate and merciful to sinners. Jesus came to save who, beloved? Sinners. In a few moments, we're going to say, Taste, uh, come, believing sinners, taste and see that the Lord is good. How had salvation come to Jonah? How did the fish come to Jonah? How did the Lord respond to Jonah's plea for salvation? How did the plant come to Jonah? Was it deserved or merited? No, of course not. All of it was a gift. Every bit of it was a gift from the Lord. Every bit of it was a grace. Brian Estelle goes on to say, God has a right to do with Nineveh as he pleases, and God has a right as creator to do with us as he pleases, with plants and animals. In verse 11, God directs the third question to Jonah. The whole book has been building to this very moment. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Jonah had no right over the plant. He hadn't made it. He hadn't created it. We have to remember sometimes that God is other than us. We're creatures. Sometimes we think that God is like us, only bigger or better. He can do everything we can do a little bit better. God is other than us. Where were you when he created the world? Where were you when he created, you know, hung the stars? Where were you when he made the sea creatures? Most of us can't even balance our checkbook. (laughs) And God is controlling the entire universe. He is holy in and of himself. We are only holy because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us or given to us. He is different than us. He loves us and he cares for us, but he's not just like us, only bigger. He's other than. And here God is trying to get Jonah to realize what Job had to realize and what all of us need to ultimately realize sometimes. Just put our hand in front of our mouth and just say, stop. I'm in the presence of a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And the reason that we can approach him is because of his mercy and because of his grace and because he provides for us. He's the one in control of all of it, the plants, the cattle, everything, the scorching east wind. Romans says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. People react angrily whenever we talk about the doctrine of election, but Paul reminds us that when we are talking about salvation, of sinners, the only proper category is mercy. If you're a sinner, the only category 
that really matters for you is mercy. If you got justice, you would go to hell. That's what you deserve. That's the justice for your deeds, for your actions, for your thoughts. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and mercy meet. God doesn't just take an eraser and say, oh, you know what? My demands were too high. My holiness was too hard. You couldn't do it. Let's just forget about it. Let's just call it even. But he sends his own son to pay the penalty for our sin. All of our great evils, all of our lack of love towards him, all of our lack of love towards our neighbors, all of our hatred for our enemies, Jesus Christ pays the penalty for on the cross. And then remarkably, all of his perfect love towards the Father, towards his neighbor, towards his enemies, all of his obedience is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. And at the cross, justice and mercy meet. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died for you. He died in your stead. And mercy and grace are yours now and forever. He's saying in Psalm 23, mercy and goodness shall follow me how many days of my life? Wow. The story of Jonah is a great one and does us well to recall and reflect upon it and to consider these same questions. Are we thankful for the mercy that God has showered down upon us, but resentful to the mercy that God has shown others? Dr. Estelle said this. In the tradition of the audience to whom the story was first told, everything suggested that the right answer was no. An evil Gentile city should experience no divine pity, but to say no after hearing the story of Jonah would be embarrassing and petty, wouldn't it? Everything in your unregenerate heart would say, yeah, get them. They don't deserve it. But after you hear the story, and after you hear about the love and grace and mercy of God, how could you not but say, of course. Not that they deserve it, but what an amazing God. A God who's slow to mercy. It's really meant to invite us in. It ends with a question. What do we think about these things? How do we feel about things? How do we respond to these things? As a church, we get to tell the story of Jonah, but we get to tell the story as it fits into the narrative, the one to whom Jonah points, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He also came with a message of judgment and salvation. He came on a mission of mercy to save his people from sins, not just to tell us about it, but to actually provide it on his way to the cross. He came for stubborn insiders, like Jonah, and he came for rebellious outsiders like the Ninevites. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said in our call to worship, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not just promising salvation, but he is providing salvation. A cursed death. Three days in the tomb like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. A glorious rescue, a glorious resurrection. A perfect obedience where Jonah failed to obey the Lord. Jesus obeyed at every point, never turning to the right or to the left. Jesus comes out of love and mercy and compassion for all who are his. Jesus is saving and gathering people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, anyone and everyone who calls on the Lord. Jesus didn't resent the Lord's mercy. It was actually on the cross when he was paying the penalty for our sins where he said, Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they do. That's the opposite of Jonah. Jonah was resenting God's grace and mercy. Jesus is counting on it as he himself is hanging there. Father, forgive them. And he does. If you're here this morning and you've called upon the name of the Lord, then be comforted and be assured if you've called on the name of Jesus that your sins are forgiven and there is no more condemnation for you. You're adopted, you're loved, and there's nothing that can separate you from his loving hand. And if you're here this morning and you're angry, you're shaking your fist at God, or you think I'm too far gone to be saved, or he couldn't possibly save someone like me, poppycock. Today's the day of salvation. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come. Come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for not pulling any punches with us in Scripture and showing us the reality of our sin and our misery and what it deserves. But we thank you that you didn't leave us in that, but you had a plan from all of eternity to not only provide salvation, but to save us. And that you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. And Father, we recognize that we have received an embarrassment of riches. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. We recognize that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who's fully satisfied for all of our sins, and that we are clothed in his robe of righteousness and that we're indwelt with his spirit. And beloved, may that reality, or Father, may that reality reflect in us, that we who have been shown so much mercy and grace, may that be the character of our speech and the character of our actions towards others as well. And would you use us as instruments of your peace that others may know you and may know salvation as well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.